is the Beyond the Studio podcast, and you're listening to Season 2, Beyond the Studio West Coast Edition. I'm Amanda Adams. And I'm Nicole Muller, and we're here to help you figure out the business of being an artist. Here we'll share honest conversations with artists, makers, and business experts, and dive deep into the work that happens beyond the studio. Support for this season comes from Southern Exposure's Alternative Exposure Grant Program in partnership with Facebook's Artist in Residence Program and the Andy Warhol Foundation. If you find value in listening to Beyond the Studio, we'd love to ask you to leave us a rating and review on iTunes. It's the easiest way to show us some love and to help others find the podcast. Thank you so much in advance for letting us know what you think and for supporting the show. You might hear some adult language used occasionally on the show, so please be mindful of those around you and pop in some headphones if needed. Today's episode is brought to you by Storyblocks, an amazing stock image, audio, and video platform that we've had the pleasure of working with before. When you sign up for Storyblocks, you get unlimited downloads from their member library, so you can try out any clip you want, including HD and 4K footage, After Effects templates, motion backgrounds, and much more. Don't forget, all their content is royalty-free, so you can use it for commercial and personal projects, and they're yours forever. So check out Storyblocks' incredible video library through our unique link storyblocks.com slash beyond the studio on today's episode of beyond the studio west coast edition we're talking with artist and photographer marcella pardo arisa who is based here in san francisco marcella thank you so much for joining us we're excited to talk with you today yeah thanks so much for having me Definitely. Would you mind, just for listeners who aren't familiar with your work, just to tell us a little bit in general about what you make, what kind of work you do? Totally. I feel like my practice ranges between doing a lot of stage photography and uh, building frames to curating and kind of organizing events that gather people. Great. Usually for uh, the conversations, we like to go back to the beginning and just ask a little bit about your early creative journey. What did your your childhood look like? At what point did creativity start to enter that? Or um, did you start to see a life for yourself as an artist? What were the early days like? The early days? What a question. <laughs> you know, one of the things that I feel like has shaped a lot of where I'm, I am today is my parents doing a lot of theater when I was growing up and they were doing theater we were living in Bogota Colombia I feel like our context was very complex just to say uh, the least you know they were using it as a tool of resistance but also as a tool of kind of making the everyday a little bit more bearable I feel like since I was growing up, I was influenced by that. But I also was doing a lot of music when I was little, which was interesting because it was a lot of classical music. And Mm -hmm. I always felt like classical music was so uptight and so gendered. And I felt like I was such an awkward tomboy just trying to fit in Mm -hmm. and like play like all this white dude's music, Uh, (laughs) which was confusing at the time. But now I I feel like I have a better framework to understand why I felt so out of place at the moment. So I did a lot of music then. um, And it wasn't until I left home when I was 16. I I finished high school in Costa Rica. And I think that when I was there, um, you know, I went to a weird high school where there were a lot of people from different parts of the world and a lot of my sense of of what a value was of what a truth was was questioned 
And so I realized that a lot of the things that I had learned were very arbitrary and not actually true. <laughs> yeah. I felt like, you know, art was in a way a tool that I could use that would also allow me to be ambiguous and have a connection with an audience without having to give them like a fixed meaning or a conclusion, you know? There was, you know, just an opportunity of making sense of the world in a, in a different, more playful, more critical type of way through art making than any other ways I've, I had experienced before. Yeah. You went to college and grad school here in the States, right? Yeah, I, I went to college in Indiana, which was very weird and very random. And I managed to have a really good experience after all, but it was weird. Yeah, I imagine the Midwest is pretty different than both Costa Rica and Colombia. <laughs> yes, but it was also cool because I felt like I was able to connect with a lot of different people who were very conservative and kind of bridge a level of communication between what they thought I was and what I thought they were. Mm -hmm. And then I moved to New York because, you know, I had spent enough time in Indiana, so I was ready for a change. <laughs> <laughs> and in New York, I did a lot of like free labor, but also, you know, I was working in like more alternative art spaces and, and I realized that there was this whole world where art didn't have to be commercial necessarily. So I was really inspired by that. I was really inspired by the people who were making those experiences post like possible for, you know, just to bring people together in a very unlikely scenario. I was applying to grad school and I was decided between staying in New York and coming to San Francisco. And in San Francisco, there's just such a legacy of photography, both experimental photography and also more traditional one. And then there's also such a queer legacy that I was a little too tempted not to come here. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's the right place to be. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's a good overview of what how you came out to the Bay Area. Um, at what point did photography start to enter the picture for you, though? Or did visual arts come into play? Because it sounds like creative expression was really embedded in your family and in your experience growing up. And then having all these really diverse experiences at this international school and then coming to a really conservative part of the United States before moving to a city like New York. So you have just this such interesting trajectory already. But at what point did you decide that you wanted to to pursue visual art? Was there a moment or was it just an organic happening? And is that what you were studying in, um, in undergrad? Yeah, I was, I was studying art and sociology. And I was initially really wanted to be a painter. I had this very idealistic, you know, idea of what that would look like, <laughs> as we all do. But uh, my teacher at the time refused to kind of teach us how to mix color, which I, I felt like it was such a like necessary tool um, to paint. So I was like, okay, I'm just going to learn something else instead. So I took a photography class and in the college that I went to, we only had darker photography and he was so nurturing, but also I'm, I'm so glad he like embraced the like weird f photos I was trying to do. And I remember having this, you know, this kind of like assignment where we just had to photograph subjects and I asked my friend to pose with, I had asked him if he would feel comfortable doing a series with, with his ex-boyfriend. And he was like, yeah, totally, let me reach out. So we had this very intimate experience where I was photographing him and he was with his ex or like a lover, you know, that he had had in the past. And it was so weird to be able to be in that space with them and see their bodies reconnect as we were doing this photo shoot. And I, I really enjoyed like 
being able to be in that space with them and like the the level of trust and intimacy that we had together but also um seeing the photos that resulted from that afterwards and feeling like just like oh there's this product that's so tangible of such a like intimate tender encounter there was this very weird connection that happened in that moment where I was like this feels like the right tool for what I'm trying to investigate. So I feel like I felt in love with photography then. And it was interesting, you know, I was like coming out. I was, this was a tool to also enter other people's lives and like their realities and also understand my own. And I also felt like photography, the photography I was learning about was also so boring. (laughs) And so Mm -hmm. I felt like there was so much potential to see something besides black and white landscapes or vegetable pictures. And, you know, I knew there were more at the moment, but those were the ones I was looking at. So yeah. So what was it like then going from Indiana to New York? I'm sure it was kind of a culture shock in a lot of ways, but was that also starting to expose you to other, to, I I would imagine just this broader art community and what was that transition like? Yeah, so I, in, well, I was still in, in college, there, there was like a New York program, like a six month program. So that that was targeted towards artists. So I went and in a way it was such a great experience because they give you just the tools of how to interact with the art world, which sounds so silly, but you know, there's so many like arbitrary ways of interacting with it that just having someone be like, you know, you see these buildings that seem really intimidating. They're called galleries and the people behind them that don't say hi to you most of the time, um, you know, are actually expect like know about the art and ready to engage with you. So these are very silly things. But at the time I was just like, oh, I would have never thought to enter these spaces, nor would I have ever like occurred to me to ask galleries a question. And I was also interning with Sebastian Bremer, who's a Dutch photographer who paints on the photos. Um, so that was really cool because I was just seeing the, you know, other ways of treating photography. And I also went to the International Center of Photography and I was in the education department and got to see all these more contemporary works that I hadn't seen. And I was just so blown away by it. So I felt like those two experiences really connected. And randomly enough, I ended up babysitting for Sebastian. So I got to see his personal life as an artist, which also Mm. shaped my understanding of what it was like to be an artist in real life. So just seeing him, yeah. you know, doing very mundane things and going to the studio and applying to grants and also having to do weird invoices and a lot of bureaucratic stuff. So as much as I was into it, I was also disenchanted and I also understood the whole picture better. That's so interesting. Nicole and I have a shared experience where we both babysat for the same family and it was uh, <laughs> an artist that we knew through Micah, uh, which is the college that we both went to. And I definitely also have learned so much from that experience of the behind the scenes life of how they're like having this partnership and this family and being homeowners and getting into galleries and doing freelance and like all these different aspects of being an artist and a human that we often kind of forget about when we're just thinking about careers. But like, at the end of the day, we're trying to make lives for ourselves and we have to pay the bills and want to enjoy our home life and whatnot. And that's such an interesting connection that we've all learned so much through babysitting. It is is so real. It, you get into this whole other side that's a little bit more humane, um, mm-hmm. but you also see like the resilience it takes to be an, an artist for real in the yeah. sense of like, yeah, having a discipline, but also being really organized. You're like basically your own everything. 
Um, mm-hmm. And then you're like handling multiple jobs or multiple gigs and everything can be so overwhelming, but also you have to put your own systems in place in a way. Yeah. So did you go directly from undergrad into graduate school? Is that when you moved out to California? I finished undergrad and then I was in New York for like an, a year and a half and I was dealing with some visa stuff and I was applying to grad school and I was also kind of interning in alternative art spaces and then eventually getting hired. So I worked with like Clock Tower Gallery that was this kind of like a side baby of PS1. So there were residencies and different performances. There was one that was actually my favorite. We would do this thing called like the midnight moment, which was, uh, you know, all these videos in, in Times Square, right? Like at midnight, all the screens would turn into like a video artist works for three minutes. And we would host different performances right before in different balconies so that you could see a performance and then see the video being projected in Times Square. And I remember oh, wow. doing this job and being so blown away by the fact that somebody just came up with this. And now we were all gathered here to like see this experience all together at midnight on a Wednesday. That's so interesting. I mean, Times Square is such an iconic, very American thing. Like if you come to America, you're probably going to go to Times Square at some yeah. point. And I bet it's amazing to actually see some really cool art and not exclusively advertising. Totally. And really taking that framework that advertisements has taken into architecture, right? And then subverting it to show videos at like midnight. Seems so mm-hmm. random, but I, I found it so powerful precisely because Times Square is so iconic in, in you know, in the way it has been presented for so long. Yeah. Getting into your experience in grad school a little bit, what did you feel that was like in terms of furthering your understanding of what it looked like to be an artist, kind of translating some of what you were initially seeing through the artists that you were working with um, and getting to know in New York and then starting to apply that into your own life or think about like what would what would that look like for you, especially like during and then maybe immediately after grad school? Yeah, that's a really good question, actually. I, I think about it a lot because I feel like the Bay Area arts community was so different than New York. It felt so much more welcoming in terms of like, you know, being less about who your family was and more about like who you were as a person, which I could never take for granted. But, you know, uh, being in New York, I wasn't really aware of why things felt harder. So being in the Bay Area, I started to recognize all the connections that you know, the Art Institute has been here for a while. CCA has been here for a while. So if you start kind of making those lineages, you realize that someone who owns a gallery went to a school or, you know, whatever iteration that, that can take. But I started doing a lot of mapping in my head of understanding who was who and what were they doing and what kind of art they were presenting. And I think, you know, when you move to a new place, you're just trying to understand how it works. And for some reason, I felt like in the Bay Area that fueling happened much more organically because it's so small and people are so interconnected and you run into people a lot. And it was cool to just see, you know, where people were having the studios, what kind of alternative art spaces were open at the time. I also happened to know, like, my cohort at the Art Institute was quite incredible. I felt very connected with them, and we had the critiques where we would actually call each other out and not be passive-aggressive, which I actually think made us closer. That's awesome. Uh, and also made us grow really fast in, in our own practices because we were just trying to get to the bottom of what it was that we were trying to express and how we were doing it, but we were also trying to support each other. And I think about them a lot in terms of what 
collaboration looks like. I feel like we have never been taught how to collaborate with other people. And so I have a sense that people have a, a negative impression of what that can look like because we don't have the tools or that you know like the the communication skills to be like no actually I don't think that works what about this or or just making compromises I felt like with that group of friends we really trained each other to be able to be both honest but also uh, compromise in one way or another so that was really cool and really you know it kind of changed my way of thinking about art and how making art in insulation is actually not even that possible <laughs> And did a lot of your peers stay in the Bay Area after graduating then? Did you feel like that support system that you built up during grad school is something that you then were able to take with you as you were all kind of starting your careers anew in the Bay? I think half and half. Um, Interestingly enough, a lot of those folks weren't from the States. So a lot of them, their visas run out or, you know, they had to go pay loans elsewhere. But we still Mm -hmm. are, are, are like in touch and we look for ways of collaborating with, you know, across just transnationally. But the people who did stay... I feel like kept doing a lot of work and we, to this day we still see each other and collaborate. So for instance, uh, I went to school with Kat Trataris and her and I ended up doing this collaboration, this group called Women Art Handlers. So that's what we're doing now. We kind of did that at school and we had different experiences and now we were like, it's time to do something that that goes beyond ourselves too. So was that on your mind as you were getting ready to graduate? Were you thinking that you definitely wanted to stay in San Francisco or were you looking at other possibilities? What were you thinking was going to be the next step for you at that time? When I graduated, it felt uh, counterintuitive to move anywhere else just because the the sense of belonging Belonging, like artistic belonging had been created in a way and I felt like the, you know today I still feel like there's so much more possibility in it so the sense of starting over in a different place just to create a sense of community that I have here feels yeah just counterintuitive and I also felt like I you know I moved here for grad school so I hadn't actually gotten to know the city and the scope of the city as well so I wanted to stay and just kind of keep building on those connections uh, with the people that I had met. Uh, and then I started working at uh, Jebrawana Center for the Arts in the community engagement department. So I felt like, you know, there's still more things to be done here. And especially when people are being like displaced, artists are being displaced at such high rates. Uh, there's a sense of solidarity here where people actually call each other if there are opportunities or gigs, or even if you, you're trying to learn something and you call someone up. So there's a humbling space that I don't think I can find somewhere else at this moment in time. Yeah, that's a good point. Are you part of the, the Facebook group bulletin board? Yeah. Yeah, someone invited me to that when I had first moved out to San Francisco like a few years ago. And I just remember feeling like, oh, this is so great that there's all these shared resources. And it's just this Facebook group where people post like opportunities or, hey, we have a bunch of leftover pedestals from this gallery if anybody needs them. And so it's just this really great, I don't know, example of community that that you're right. I guess I hadn't really thought about that before, but maybe some of the added challenges of being an artist, living in a place like San Francisco creates 
this sort of stronger, more tight-knit community. And I think something else that you said earlier was interesting that as you, you got out here, you started to map out the ways that these galleries or larger kind of academic institutions like SFAI and CCA, like what the connections were between all of those things and starting to see different pathways for, you know, how you can make your own way as an artist beyond what you were seeing in New York and then starting to create your own pathway out of that um, or align yourself with those communities that are supportive that can help further your work and and so I'm interested to know once you got out of grad school um, you started working with Yerba Buena um, Center for the Arts uh, was what kind of role were you in there um, was this uh, like a day job that you saw as uh, just a supporter to your studio practice um, or what role do you would you say that your your day job has to your practice or work as an artist it's a good question I I also wanted to add one thing just before I forget that was yeah. you know in that mapping of galleries and institutions which becomes very apparent after a while. I also realized that even within that kind of ecosystem, there were people being left behind, right? So people who sure, didn't yeah. go to school and yeah, just like undocumented folks, people who couldn't get paid in the same way that like artists were getting paid. And also that even though the Bay Area is quite diverse, I didn't feel like the art world in it is as diverse. Mm-hmm. And so there are different yeah. pockets that I'm still trying to figure out how to connect better in you know just after being here for so long or not so long but like it feels long enough sorry there's a motorcycle outside uh it's all good it happens i had a bird earlier that was chirping incessantly (laughs) yeah so just i feel like i have a better sense now of how there are loopholes and spaces to include those people who are often left out within that framework and it was actually cool once once i started working at ybca because we were working in a fellowship program and we were also working on contextual programming. One of the cool things uh, when I started the job was learning about different organizations that were art-related, but not necessarily exclusively. So they had a little, you know, different interdisciplinary approaches or they were working with youth or they were working with like health services in the city through design so in a way, it, it gave me a little bit more space to think uh, more broadly about what the our world includes or what mm-hmm. it excludes uh, intentionally. So I remember really being so excited to join YBC at that time because it felt like it wasn't um, an institution that was so traditional and mm-hmm. I was working with people who were very like-minded. And yeah, and it was a job after grad school that I felt was abstract enough that that felt like a challenge and that was still like in my field so that I felt like I was walking steps into what what I want my life to actually look like and then it was it was downtown which I you know I I know that people have this very weird idea of working downtown but I, I really get energized by the buzzing and I love that about New York and so I just always feel that the energy energizes me back so and are you still working with YBCA? Yes, so I'm still working there. Um, it's been two years. It feels like a long time. But um, I've met so, so many people through it, both through the fellowship program that we host because it's interdisciplinary. And I interact with a lot of those people that I have met in different ways, like in the city, people that I see or like run into or collaborate in different projects outside of that. So that has been really cool. And then understanding how institutions work of the, you know, institutions of different levels. So I'm at YBCA right now. And then I'm also in the curatorial council at Southern Exposure, which is a different size and a different way of presenting 
didn't work. And I like understanding how each one has a different equation, right? That they're trying to figure out. And especially when we're trying to think about what being an equitable institution or being an equitable field looks like. I think there's a lot of different initiatives and programs and discourses around it. And and I like kind of, inter, you know, being integrated in those because I get a sense of what, what it actually needs to look like and how we can change it and move it forward from within. Yeah, that's a great answer. Are there things that you've noticed or learned from, so you mentioned just the scale of how these organizations operate, like things that you've learned that you've been able to apply to your own work as an artist or that has like shaped the way that you're thinking about your own career just in seeing, whether it's from like an organizational standpoint or just seeing how these institutions at different scales work with artists in the community or like what does that look like and how does that come back to maybe affect the way that you, because um, I know you you also uh, curate shows and have exhibited your work extensively throughout the Bay. So has how has working at those places informed maybe the way that you collaborate um, on the other end as an artist? Yeah, it has definitely informed it, both in, in very logistical ways and like kind of also very bureaucratic ways, but also understanding that even if you're interacting with an institution, you're still interacting with a person and that you're also forging relationships that go beyond a particular place, right? So someone who's working in a place might also work at a different place and you might be able to collaborate further. So even when I create, I'm looking for good collaborators, right? Like I'm not trying to present artists that are good Mm -hmm. just for the sake of being good. I'm also collaborating with people because I have a sense that we share values, that we are in it in a mutually beneficial type of way, not because someone's just trying to advance their career individually. Which you can usually feel (laughs) very easily. Yeah. (laughs) You know? And then also understanding, you know, people's egos, people's ways of communicating, the systems that work for us. I I can tell very well whether or not someone's like, how they're being responsive or not. Or if you're asking too much from them for, for how much you're paying them. The changes in interactions, if people are feeling valued or not. I think it has given me a little bit more perceptiveness around how... How we collaborate both in where there's money involved and where there's not Mm -hmm. money involved. You know, if it's like a true, true collaboration or if people are feeling like they're being taken advantage or not being paid enough or something like that. And how much that shapes the product of what you're working with. It has also given me tools to advocate for being paid better or not asking someone to do unpaid labor if you have the resources to pay them. You know, just yep. communicating clearly what your expectations are without, without being pushy, which I think has happened for me. I, you know, we all have had different experiences where we're like, um, if, I, if that happened to me, I wouldn't do it like that, you know? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, some of those experiences, you kind of have to learn the hard way sometimes, but it shapes you on how you communicate with people and you understand it's not exactly related. But I always think of it in regards to uh, like food service where it's like I have been that person who is washing the dishes and like taking your order and like doing all of the things and... I can absolutely put myself in your shoes and I can be nice to you because you're a human and I'm a human and totally like we're on the same level. And we're also in the same industry and we will be forever in the same industry. So we're forging relationships that are not only about one moment in time and the interactions that we have shouldn't be prescribed. Like we get to choose how we want to build them. So we might as well communicate, you know, in the ways that we want to and 
and the ways that are more productive for both people. So, yeah, I know we've learned it a lot from this podcast where, you know, we invite someone on to be a guest so we can have this conversation and learn from each other and talk and share it with our listeners. But it does develop a relationship and we'll like go to each other's shows and Nicole's it's easier for her with this season since it's all West Coast and she's actually on the West Coast. But I know Nicole has been able to go to a bunch of different events with artists that we've met through the show and done studio visits and we've made even more connections through it. And it's amazing when you put energy into your community, it it puts that energy back into you and you can all grow together. And that's something that has been one of the biggest lessons we've learned from this podcast is just how much we have an awesome community around us. Yeah, great artists. Totally. And then like, you know, this podcast wouldn't have existed if you two wouldn't have had a conversation about it and like talked about it and now we're here like the fact that you know something can materialize in that way just because two people had a conversation it's so powerful yeah it's amazing I love it all yeah and you've (laughs) been doing a lot of collaborative work you've already mentioned uh, women are handlers which we definitely want to hear more about Um, but could you talk about some of the collaborative projects that um, have started to evolve for you and that you've been a part of you know one of the projects that I felt was was collaborative in a way that I felt pushed and moved by was for a show at the San Francisco Arts Commission Gallery Jackie M invited me to do a show with another artist and and I was trying to think about what the body of work would look like. And because that those galleries are close to City Hall, I wanted to work with people who are also working in the city. And I wanted to work with artists who also had an interest outside of themselves and their own career. And a lot of them were performers. So, you know, I was calling them. A lot of them are friends. And I was just like, hey, I want to do this show. You know, can you come? Can we, can you bring your performative or like your performance energy? I'll bring my photo energy and we make something together that feels good and new and it's also fun. And I think the purpose of that work was both for us to have kind of a record of where we are at right now and what we share in this moment in time. It's kind of becomes like an archival kind of collaboration, but also just getting a sense of how we can create things that represent ourselves. So I was working with Sandra Ibarra, who is La Chica Boom, who, you know, does a lot of like work regarding fighting like stereotypes through humor. And and she also works with like Inside, who um, is this activist group that kind of fights incarcerated, you know, kind of fights for the rights of incarcerated women. And she's also an incredible performer and so fun. And then there was also, you know, like Grace Towers, who does a lot of drag, mostly in the Castro, but also elsewhere. And then she also has works for Queen of the Castro, which is a, a project that raises scholarship for queer youth. And they were also, you know, working with like gender expression in like public high schools and stuff like that. So I was collaborating with them and like Julie Tolentino, who is kind of like a mentor for me, with Fiera, who is a DJ, who also hosts these parties for like brown and black folks and performers, and then Juliana Delgado Lopera, who is also an incredible writer that writes in Spanglish, but she's also the director of Radar Productions, which holds like queer literary all-ages shows and events. So I was interested in, in again, that, that mapping. Yeah, what a great opportunity to bring all these people together into one space. Yeah, and... What a badass group. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And also, yeah, Sulfikar Alibuto was there too. And, we, you know, we went to school together and we can keep on collaborating. But, yeah, it's cool to just, you know, 
have opportunities to honor the people that inspire you and to yeah. just work with them. And also because you're friends or like, I, you know, I'm friends with these people and we are, we're also choosing how to spend our social time, right? And making art together is so much more fun than going to a bar and getting drunk. I don't know. <laughs> you know, it's like a different way of interacting with each other. So that that's an example of the, you know, the collaboration that I felt, you know, it started as a, I'm just going to try this out. And then I was so inspired by seeing all of their practices and learning more and seeing their props and the materials they use and just trying to create something together. And then for the Bay Area Now show, that was another, you know, moment where I was looking through the a lot of queer archives that exist here, both in the public library and also in the GLBT Historical Society. And I don't, I can't take these archives for granted because the idea of having a queer archive in Colombia is kind of unthought of. Yeah. <laughs> Being in the right place. <laughs> yes. So, I, you know, I was so excited to go through them and, and I realized that, like, the archives are also very regimented places right you can just go through them there's a sense of keeping history and keeping these these boxes away in a way that feels safe for the history but not in a way that revives it or revises it in different ways and then so I was kind of borrowing those bodies from the past quote-unquote uh, and, you know, printing them large size and then having them in my studio. And I would ask models who were mostly friends to come to my studio and see who they would connect with. And I would ask them to hold these people like they were their lovers or their sisters or their brothers uh, and create this sense of kinship uh, with people who you haven't met, but people who have put their bodies uh, in order to create the world that we are in today. Right. So it's a collaboration that in a way is, is an impossible but it also allows you to enter history through a different point of view, which I felt was a new experience, you know, like I hadn't ever thought about how to enter the past that I wasn't in with a sense of honoring or a sense of like gratefulness for those people who came before us. Yeah. So the Bay Area Now show is definitely a higher visibility show, definitely here in the Bay, but beyond that as well. And one of the other guests that we had on the podcast, Desiree Holman, um, had talked about being included in the Bay Area Now exhibit. I think this was number two or three and how she felt like um, that was really uh, kind of a pivotal moment for her in her career and leading to other higher visibility opportunities. And so this is really new for you because the show's just come down I think today right is yeah we're recording um but do, have you felt the effects of that in any way or do you feel like being a part of the show has led to any other opportunities for you career-wise yeah I I feel like from that show the first thing that I was so blown away by was the fact that I was alongside people that I admire so much that I had known about when I moved to the Bay Area so I think that show was an awakening in terms of realizing, you know, the, how those connections had developed over time or which artists I had, like, engaged in different ways. So I think that just to be a part of that show was incredible. And I feel like there are opportunities, you know, I'm still working and I'm still creating stuff. You know, there's certain things that that I'm like in the work, so I couldn't possibly talk about them right now. But they, but I think, you know, I came like the Facebook residency, I think, came from that, which was a really new experience. And I'm also working with a middle school to make murals with just like the first like public art that I had made. So a lot of these things are coming from, I'm guessing from that and something that happened in the past, but it's hard to trace it in such a, you know, A, sure, B yeah. 
type of way kind of build off of each other too yeah that's right and then i think i mean there's a show in june that's coming up uh, that's called precarious lives that rudy lemke is curating you know they've been doing a lot of queer shows of the past two years and this is the third show they're curating and and i see the the through line in the themes, you know, of mm-hmm. of people holding each other or like holding the past closely and then, you know, being in a show like Precarious Lives that's also honoring the past and honoring those who are not like as privileged or uh, who are holding on to each other to, in order to survive. So I, I can see it more in terms of themes. And then I was able to do the, this publication called Beyond Bloodlines out of that show where we, me and Irwin Swirnoff, who's a film curator here in, in San Francisco, we put a call for submissions for, you know, for people's art and writing on queerness, uh, family, uh, both cho- chosen family and not chosen family and, um, and kinship. And we got like a lot of submissions and we ended up doing a publication with 40 of them. And these are like people who are both in San Francisco, in different states and outside of the states, which for me is really important always to just have a a conversation outside of this geographical location. And then, you know, being able to collaborate with these bodies of the archive and then also collaborate with these people who are living here right now was really beautiful. And being able to create a book that is no longer, is not like attached to an exhibition, but it's something that can move much more easily feels like a very good step after after the Bay Area Now show. Yeah, man. Collaboration has been such a great theme of this conversation um, as a whole. Could you talk a little more about your group, Women Art Handlers, and how that collaboration came about, the need for that type of group, and maybe your own background and experience with art handling as well, how you got into that? So I got into art handling when I was in New York just because I was doing gallery work and understanding the full cycle of how, you know, how it was working. And because I was an intern, um, I was doing a lot of unpaid labor, which I thought was problematic from the beginning, but I kind of had to keep doing it um, to kind of fulfill yep. my visa status. So it was this weird thing where I was working in a bar and that was paying me better than what I had studied, which I thought was problematic. Right, because it's within <laughs> your field, you mean you had to stay in the arts in order to meet that qualification? Yes. Uh-huh. And it was really hard, obviously, to get hired in such a funny, like, visa immigration um, status. But, and then, you know, but I was like, I'm learning things, this is cool, whatever, you can convince yourself of anything. <laughs> and, and then I was working with a lot of preparators. A lot of them were white men, you know, there were other women as well, but I was starting to realize that there was some funny dynamics there. And also within curators and, and preparers, right? There was this sense of this weird hierarchy that I thought was so unnecessary and so outdated uh, between the people who are like thinking about the themes and connections of the show and the people who are actually putting the show together and valuing that kind of intellectual labor over physical labor in different ways and how it actually doesn't make any sense that there is so much disconnect. But, um, you know, I was doing... When I came to SFAI, there was some gallery position thing. And so I was doing it with three other women. And Catratarius was one of the other ones. And we were installing shows and, you know, just understanding how the installation and exhibition thing was uh, working out. And at that time, Kat also opened RSF projects with Anishka and Lauren. So then she kept doing a lot of that work. And we would always talk about how it was such a like heavily dominated 
feel by, you know, just by like cisgender white dudes. There was just a disconnect between, you know, people that we graduated with looking for our jobs and not finding any. And this industry being there, uh, operating only on a word of mouth. It's also, a, you know, being a preparer, there's not a certificate for being one. So there's no way of proving that somebody knows the skills or not. So we just felt like there was a disconnect. And then Kat was uh, working at SFMO as a preparer as well. And she started this Instagram called Girl Preparator that was getting a lot of attention. And so we would always talk about how weird that was. Uh, and eventually we were just like, I think it's time for us to do just like a women are handler, you know, either workshops or like mixers. And when we started doing the mixers, we realized there were a lot of people who were coming from outside of the, you know, direct Bay Area. They were coming from like Fresno or like mm-hmm. up north. And they were just like, oh, I'm the only queer person in my team. I can't believe there's other ones. Like I'm the only mm-hmm. woman or there's only one POC here. So it was such a good moment for us to gauge how much this group was necessary in this moment in time. Because I think we started it as a way of being like, oh, we can teach each other stuff and we can be a support network and tell each other about gigs because on-call preparer work is so unsustainable <laughs> and so infrequent. So we're starting doing that. We saw in the mixers that there was a lot of energy for it. And then we talked to SFAI about doing a public education art class. So we host, we're hosting for workshops and they all sold out within. We wanted them to be free so they were more accessible. And people sign up so fast that within like three minutes, all the spots were filled. And we have a, a wait list that's super long. So even just receiving that that type of interest, we're a little blown away by and also makes us both so excited for just having space to make that that work more visible and more transparent because at the end, you know, institutions are paying whatever they want to pay. Someone who has been doing that job for 10 years is getting paid the same amount of someone who just started. A lot of institutions say that they are having trouble finding preparators, but yet we have a list of like 50 plus people who are like women, non-binary, like queer and trans and people of color who are looking for jobs. So there's clearly a disconnect that that's happening. And, and it's cool to see it. You know, we were talking to people in Seattle. We talked to Level It, who is kind of like a similar initiative that's happening there. So it's cool to see that like we're all working towards that just more diverse workplace, but a type of diversity that's just like non-tokenizing and just a little bit more intentional. Yeah. Yeah, and that's so, so completely necessary, especially in these worlds, well, really a lot of the world, but these worlds where they've been so dominated by straight white cis men, and that does not represent the population at large at all, and especially for folks that are so feeling isolated where they're at, where maybe they're the only person like themselves within their immediate circle, and they're like, am I the only one at all? And now that we have the internet, we can get people connected and and show that like, no, you are not alone. We're all over the place. We just are having trouble finding jobs. <laughs> yeah, well, it's so encouraging to hear that what started out as just another conversation, right, between you and Kat, then evolved into this organized group, which is evolving into, you know, it's going to continue to grow and that type of organization 
leads to advocacy and leads to change. And since you had mentioned SFMOMA, I feel like, you know, the the union negotiations that were happening there is just one example of how, you know, that that is really important and that really impacts things like fair wages. And so having that type of organized conversation around this shared mission, you know, that really has an impact. And so it's exciting to, you know, hear about that on this grassroots level. And now, like you're saying, you're um, starting to connect with all these other groups who are having the same conversation in other places and connecting all of that together. And I mean, this is definitely how um, those things are, those issues are remedied. So I'm excited to hear about it and um, to see where it goes to. Yeah. And it is really exciting also to see people being engaged with it in a different way, because, you know, it's not like, Kat and I are going to figure this out, right? Yeah, sometimes you just need that platform, like something to connect people. Like you said, like all these people suddenly came together and we're like, I'm so glad there's a place for this to happen. Totally. And that we can talk to each other and we can share resources. And I mean, that's maybe the more important thing, right? Is not that like any one person has the answers, but that you're creating a space for that conversation to take place and for people to make connections that, you know, then they're going to take that into their own communities and it's going to build off of itself. Totally. And it's also cool just in terms of the knowledge that you have is different than the knowledge that I have. And we can like actually train each other in a nurturing, transparent, caring way. And we'll both be much more successful doing that type of job if we like teach each other in that way, especially physical labor. uh, That if you're trying to learn in an environment that's not supportive at all. So there's, we always talk with Kat about like, there's something I need and there's something I can offer. And we talk with, you know, people who are taking the workshop as well so that we're actually all engaging and not just waiting to be taught uh, or just waiting to enact, you know, whatever. Yeah. And sometimes the most empowering thing you can do or what people need is just to be given permission to go forward with it, to be supported and hear feedback of like, okay, I'm not the only person that thinks this is a cool idea and that this should move forward or that this is necessary. And just having that that kind of support can really, I don't know, give you the the power you need to be like, yeah, I'm going to fucking do it. I'm going for it. Yeah, totally. (laughs) This is from way, way earlier in the conversation, but you talked a little bit about, or you referenced uh, like organizational tools regarding maintaining your studio practice. Do you have any tools or resources that you're using regularly that are really helping you to kind of stay organized and keep on top of the juggling act of all these different things that you're involved in? Kind of. I really love systems and, you know, having systems in place for like archiving things and organizing you know, like hard drives and invoices and things like that. Uh, But I'm also trying to be a little softer with the fact that those systems are never perfect and that there's not an absolutely way of tracking absolutely everything. So I feel like I try my best to be as organized as possible, but also, you know. Forgiving of of the chaos. Forgiving (laughs) of the fact that like having an artistic practice is not a formula, you know. And Mm -hmm. that, you know, even storing something, think about it as storage so much too, of like, you know, the frames that are rectangles that I have are so easy to store. And then the ones that are unconventional frames are such a pain to store. (laughs) And I feel like that sometimes some projects I'm like, yes, I got this. This is like this A to C makes sense. And there are other ones that I'm like, I'm still trying to make sense of this and it's hard and I'm just gonna do it until I get it done and figure that way that works for that one. So I have systems in place, but I'm not, I, I'm not all Virgo about it. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. And for, for those that have not seen the work yet, well, go look at it now. But also the frames are like, <laughs> they're L-shaped. They're like intersecting with each other. The frames are, they're wild. It's amazing. Thank you. But yes, I imagine they'd be a pain in the butt to store. I mean, it, I think about sculpt, uh, sculptures all the time. And oh, this is also because of women are handlers. We're like, how would you build a crate for this? Uh, yeah. And, yeah. you know, just thinking about how there's not one way that always works. For being an artist, I think that you just have yeah. to remain so flexible about what works better for that particular moment in time. Or maybe having a plan and be ready to abandon that plan at any moment. <laughs> yeah, yes. that's such a great all point. Relatable. Um, <laughs> that, that applies to every layer of your work in life. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Is there Are there any other major projects or initiatives or things that you're involved with that we haven't talked about yet? I mean, we talked about... Uh, yeah, Women Are Handlers and YBCA. I think right now I'm involved, I mentioned being involved in the Curatorial Council at SOEX, um, which is an interesting one in the sense that they are moving from, you know, having one director and one curator to inviting artists to curate the shows and to creating like 8 to 12 people, you know, inviting them to this council and talk about it. And it has been an interesting experience in the sense that a lot of these people I had known from before. So we have a platform which we can have those conversations and hear about their artists that we like or the artists that we're excited by. And in a way, I'm so intrigued by that model and how that model can be shifted and adopted by different institutions. Like actually, I'm thinking that it makes less sense to just have one curator at one place. Yeah, like what would that look like at a place like SFMOMA, for example? Totally. And and especially, yeah, I, I think it's an interesting dilemma because we are just talking about how there's not a lot of curators at large in a lot of Bay Area institutions anymore. So I also wondering what are sustainable ways for curators to have a sustainable living wage. And also thinking about how this idea of a last, of someone who has the last word, of like just one person having this whole sense of authority is also not the most sustainable in terms of making projects happen or exhibitions happen or things like that. But, you know, that being said, it's it's just cool to think that institutions are still open to finding different ways of operating within these structures. So it's, it's a project I'm excited by. It's still, I think we're still figuring out how to do it um, in the most collaborative way possible. But I think it's a good sense of su- support system in a moment where you want to develop an idea and you have people to bounce ideas with and figure out the best projects to include or the people to talk to or expand your sense of which audience you want to reach and stuff like that. Yeah, it's been so interesting to hear about your experiences working with all these different people and organizations and how much this has informed your perspectives and how things are constantly changing. And again, I feel like you've just given us so much insight into all these different types of collaborations and it's been really cool to to hear about that both in ways that are very like particular to the bay area and the art scenes here but um also in just a much broader sense um where are some of the places that people can find your work if they want to check it out maybe both as far as upcoming shows and then also online if they just want to follow your projects 
Totally. Um, I mean, my website is just, you know, marcelapardo.com. Super simple. And then, yeah, I think that I'm, I have to be, <laughs> I have to put up the next projects that I have on my website. But in Instagram, I'm just kind of uploading the new things uh, that I'm working with. I'm super stoked to do a new phase of a middle school project with Making Waves Academy. So we're doing another public art installation and I'm hosting like the workshops with the kids. I think starting a couple of weeks, so I'm stoked. And I'm also working on a on a mural project with other um, POC queer artists in in collaboration with Mission High School. So I'm really stoked about that one. Awesome, awesome. And does Women Art Handlers have an online presence? Also, if people are interested in that group. Yeah, so it's womenarthandlers.com. And people can either, you know, join the mailing list, but you can also join the preparer list. Uh, so you can kind of put your skills and things like that so people can find you. And Women Are Handlers has also a Facebook presence. And, you know, I'm not like a super fan of Facebook, but it has been actually kind of useful for people to get different gigs there and different just job opportunities. But I think long term, we, we, we want to find better systems to, to connect people to different job opportunities. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me on this podcast. It's so exciting. Yeah. yeah. Thank you so thank much. You. And thanks for sharing your experiences and your knowledge and your story and for making the beautiful photos that you do. Thank you. Today's episode is brought to you by Storyblocks, an incredible stock image, audio, and video platform that's always adding fresh new content. With their subscription, you can get exclusive discounts on their millions of marketplace clips at one low cost, giving you more options to finish your project and stretch your creativity. So check out Storyblocks video library through our unique download link, www.storyblocks.com slash beyond the studio. That's it for this episode of the Beyond the Studio podcast. You can find show notes, references, and a brief summary of the episode over at our website, beyondthe.studio. While you're there, be sure to sign up for our mailing list to find out about upcoming guests, special announcements, and podcast giveaways. I'm recording. I'm recording too. Awesome. Awesome. It's Sprout. I love you, but I gotta move you. She's like, she's sitting right next to the mic and was like licking her paws. And I don't want the, the entire <laughs> audio to just have this weird licking sound in the background. It would not be good. Um, you know, we can make it work. <laughs> this is a very interesting conversation about art today.